Let's open with prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this wonderful day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come together and, and in the presence of your spirit to worship as we study the word. We ask you to lead and guide us as we as we look at your your psalms and, and what you'd have us to learn. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Psalm 60. To the chief musician upon Susan et Doth, Mictam of David, to teach when the when he strove with Amram Naharaim and with Am Aram Zoban, when Joab returned and smote of Edom in the valley of salt 12,000. O God, you have cast us off. You have scattered us. You have been displeased. O turn yourself to us again. You have made the earth to tremble. You have, you have broken it. Heal the breaches thereof, for it shakes. You have showed your people hard things. You have made us to drink the wine of astonishment. You have given us a banner to them that fe fear you, that it may dis display, that it may be displayed before the truth, Selah. That your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand and hear me. God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and meet out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, and Manassas is mine. Ephraim also is the strength of my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom I will cast out my shoe. Philistia, triumph you because of me. You will bring me into the strong city. Who will lead me into Edom? Will not you, O God, which has cast us off, and you, O God, which did not go out with our armies? Give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man, though through God we shall do valiantly, for he it is that hath tread down our enemies. All right, so we're going to look at these a little bit. And because this has so many places, I've provided a map for everybody so we can, we can look exactly what David was saying as he went down that list of uh, maps. And, and when we get there, you'll see that he went from the north part of the country down into the south part of the country. So let's start out. Oh God, you have cast us off. You have scattered us. You have been displeased. Oh, turn yourself to us again. And this is David talking to God, knowing that God has been displeased with him. And in David's life, we normally think of God being pleased with, with Israel. But there were a couple of times when David disobeyed and Israel suffered. And this is the sad thing. When leaders disobey, the whole nation will suffer. Or, and it may even be indicative of the, the nation getting the leader that it deserves in the first place. Uh, which is kind of where we are with America. We've gotten our leader that we deserve, and we are going to be judged because of a number of the decisions that he's making to go against Israel, to hurt Israel's uh, safety and sovereignty. And we will see displeasure from God. But we also, at the same time, got the president that we deserved from the, the falling away from God. And Israel was in that same position oftentimes. Sometimes the people drove the leader, and but oftentimes the leader drove them. And we watched the kings. In Israel, when, they, when, the, when the nation split, the northern kingdom or Israel never had a good king. 
and they had many different dynasties over their years as one king would totally die out and another one would take his place uh, but they all followed idols and it's very funny that their first king followed idols because his concern was that if his people went to Jerusalem three times a year like they were supposed to that the kingdom might be taken from his hand and be rejoined back together so he decided to create idol worship, and the idol of his choice was golden calf worship. And Israel, from the very first king of Israel on, worshiped the golden calf. In Judah, they went up and down, back and forth. They had a number of good kings. They were all descendants of David in Judah. And they went back and forth between worshiping God and then worshiping idols. And when we did VBS, we talked about uh, Josiah coming to, to rule and one of the things he had to do was go have them clean out the temple because they used it as a junk closet basically you know and worse it was so polluted that it took them weeks to get it cleaned out and then they found a copy of the scriptures in there in amongst the junk and so they were able to read and Josiah had it read and, and people were repentant because they found all the different laws that they were violating and so we see that in a couple of kings where the the temple became a junkyard in the city basically and uh you know when you go well, how did that happen well we've seen it we see it in churches sometimes in inner inner city places where a church shuts down and people just throw all their junk junk into the church because it's as good a place as any for them to store it as they look at it and God says, you've ca David's saying, God, you have cast us off. You have, you have rejected. You have spurned us. You know, and then you scattered us. The ultimate scattering of the Jews was in 70 AD when they were scattered around the then known empire and beyond. And known as the diaspora or diaspora, depending on who you talk to. And they were scattered. And then they came back recently to be a nation. The only, only country that has ever been scattered around and kept its identity to be able to be formed back into a country. And God is, was displeased with them, and David's pleading with him, turn back to us. Turn back to us. And I wasn't sure how far, you know, where this event that this is referring to. Uh, it might be first, uh, Second Samuel 8, uh, but it has a different number of people, but it also had more kings involved, so uh, in more countries, and this literally could be saying that only Edom was, was slain for 12,000. Uh, but we just want to look at that. You know, David, David saying, God, please turn back. He says, you have made the earth to tremble. You have broken it. Heal the breaches thereof, for it shakes. Can you imagine the violence on this? David's very very strong on this the whole earth trembles earthquakes is what he's referring to and he and i have a feeling he's literally talking about true earthquakes here because he says you have broken it you are breaking the earth and it says heal the breaches thereof for it shakes he's saying god please heal the earth this is pretty serious and we don't know if this is poetic or if this is really something that's happening in revelation we're told that God's going to send earthquakes that are going to literally drop the mountains down. That there won't be any mountains left. That's going to be pretty violent earthquakes. 
when you think about here where we live in the foothills of the Rockies mm. and see them drop and be, you know, the earth be pretty much flattened out. And I don't believe that that's talking figuratively because it says clearly that he's going to flatten the mountains. David could be, he could be figurative saying, God, everything's being shaken, you know, please heal it. Or he could be literally talking about drastic earthquakes, depending on how angry God was with him at the time. Uh, we hear, you know, we read in the Old Testament where God opened the ground and swallowed Korah and his band of uh, rebels against Moses. You know, God can easily open the earth. He can shake the earth. Uh, and, and David's saying, heal, restore, restore the fractures that are out there, the breaches, the fractures. Yeah, and it, it's very strong. You have showed your people hard things. You have made us to drink of the wine of astonishment. And this idea of astonishment uh, literally means reeling and staggering. Okay? God, you've made things hard on his people. Yeah. On a couple occasions, David caused problems for his people, and either he ran or God punished the people because of his mistakes. Uh, one case, I can't remember exactly what it was, but David, you can run for your enemies for a certain period of time, or you know, a number of people are going to be killed, or you know, there's going to be plagues and famines. Which, which one do you want? And David said, God, you decide. You know, which one would you want to do? You know, as a leader, I probably would have chosen run from the people. It's, you know, run from run from my enemies, even though it's dangerous for me. Less of my people would be hurt. Uh, and David didn't choose that when he said he fell on God's hands. Uh, and this is, he's saying, you've shown your people hard things, hard times, because of sin. Who sin? Not sure on this one because I can't picture exactly where this happened in the in the history. Even with that description, the best example, I, I, like I said, was Second Samuel eight. And then it says, "You have made us to drink of the wine of staggering and and reeling about." Basically, he's caused them to act like drunks. You know, God, we can't even stand. We can't even stand before our enemies because we are so feeble and we can't even stand upright. If they were having tremors, they would, they would act like that. Yeah, but they're not able to, it doesn't say that their enemies are feeling it either, so yeah. it's, but you're right, I mean, it is, you have given a banner to them that fear you, that it may be displayed before the truth, Selah, and banner. We've talked about banner before, does anybody remember what the banner means? Standard. It's a standard, and what's a standard used for? It's, it was the flag that led into battle. It was a flag that led out of retreat. And oftentimes, if there was, it would stand on a hill, and it was the place where you knew that the things went wrong, you rallied around your standard. They're still used in the military today when they're, when they're in camps and everything. You camp around your standard. You, you ret retreat to your standard. Uh, if you're lost in battle, you go seek out the standard. And the, the standard bearer was, was a very trusted individual. If the standard bearer was struck down, somebody was assigned to immediately pick up the standard. And they were to pick up that standard. Uh, if you've ever seen an old Western movie with the cavalry, 
they'd have the flag in one person's hand and then they'd have the Calvary standard right next to the flag at the front of the column. All right, you'd have the United States flag and you'd have the standard bearer for the, for the, for the company. And he rode first into battle and, and he would retreat and you'd follow that standard wherever it went. It was held high. The standard bearer was also quite a target because he didn't have weapons. His hands were full holding the standard. And, uh, but that was where everything was. And David's saying, you have given a banner to them that fear you. And in Solomon, it says, your banner over us is love. And we have this banner. God is a banner where we are to pay attention to, look up to. So the banner really is Jesus because he is the one we look up to. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me because he is the standard for us. We are to be drawn to him. We are to look for him when trials happen. And then it says that it may be displayed before the truth. Now, Selah is quite an interesting word. If you look at most Christian dictionaries, it says we don't know the definition of it. Hebrew, they say it means pause to think. Uh, I don't know why the Christians don't want to accept that. I like that definition. I like that definition, pause to think. But most, of, most everywhere you look, it says we don't know the definition of this. So, I mean, it could very well be figurative or, you know, which I think is, I lean toward figurative. I do, too. He, he was, I, I lean to it as a meaning, a message yeah. for Jeremiah. But, I mean, he's very strong saying that you need, that we're, he's asking him to heal the breaches thereof, the tremors, the fractures. And that kind of, it's very poetic, but it's, I don't know what would be healed if it's not literal. So, yeah. So, when you get into poetry, it's always hard to figure out sometimes. And this one is poetic, and David was very figurative in many cases, but it, either way, it doesn't really matter. Whether it's literal and the ground is shaking because God is that angry, or he's shaking up Israel and fracturing Israel from all of that, it's the same, same, same ultimate trauma. Chaos is happening and problems are happening. Uh, whether it's literal or figurative is still going to be the same same purpose. And it's not natural because he's causing it. Right, and David's saying, God, you're doing this. You, God, you are doing this. And uh, then he says, think about this. Think about the trouble God's given us and God help us. So he's trying to draw people to put their eyes on God. And you know, when we are, when we are in trouble... Our best thing that we can do is put our eyes on God. Because he's in control. He's the one that can ultimately do anything, and he's the one that's in control. We need to put our eyes on him. And, you know, it's not natural to do that. Almost every one of us, when we're in the middle of trouble, we want to try to figure out how to do it ourselves. What's the great famous thing everybody goes, I've tried everything else, I might as well pray. You know, let me get God involved here. I've done everything I can, so God, uh, you know, I, I have failed. I'm out of, I'm out of, out of, out of uh, ideas, out of, out of tricks, so God, why don't you come in and, and, and fix this? And then even then, we don't usually want to get out of the way. And this is why I say the very first thing, we need to train ourselves that the very first thing we do is bring God into the middle of it. 
and then see how he will answer things. Let him be our defense. Let him be our, our, our thoughts and say, God, you, you are, you know, you are the deliverer. You are the one with the answers. Because he'll figure things out for us. When we can't figure it out, he's got an answer. And he Crazy thing is, he does it in his own time, <laughs> you know, which is not necessarily in our time. You know, and he was talking about the idea that, where Jesus said, behold, I come quickly. Well, to God, he's, he's quick. Anything in time is quick to God because he's outside of time. He's been around for millions of years, billions of years, trillions, quite, you know, Googleplex of years, and then add, add that to another Googleplex, and you know, he's been there, and even that is a short time to him. We as humans look at it and say, boy, God, it's taking you a long time to get here, and he's going, eh, no problem. It's, I want to make sure. I want to make sure there's been plenty of time. And I can't imagine that. That is so neat, I think. Um, the, the years that we go by, it's just like, Another day. No, another second even, yeah, you know, yeah. another another twinkle of the eye. You know, it's been it's been millennia, it's just a twinkle. Mm -hmm. But you know, for us we need to be glad that he has delayed as long as he has, otherwise we may never have been born. Right. Or we could have been just old enough to not be saved. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and God's delay gave us time to come to Christ very important for us to understand that. There are people in this world... Cause, yeah, because even back in the Bible, they thought that was the No, they thought... Yeah. All the disciples yeah. really literally thought they Jesus thought was returning in their yeah. time. Mm -hmm. And he didn't, and then the next generation thought he'd return in their time. Yeah. And you know, we've been saying it's been you know close for a long time. But as we go through the book of Revelation coming in, you're going to find how really close we are because everything in the book of Revelation is coming or right there where we can see that it could happen. Or it could be another 500 years. And it could be another 500 years. I doubt it highly because when we read the book, we're going to see this has happened, this has happened, this, oh, we know exactly how this, and I think the greatest example I can think of is the two witnesses that stand in Jerusalem and God kills, allows them finally to be killed, and it says the whole world watched them. Huh? We understand now, yeah. but even in the TV generation, even in the TV generation, even in the original TV generation, we still thought that was symbolic because it's like, how can everybody be watching them? You know, we only had, you only had three channels in most network in most most places, and if you were really lucky, you had seven or eight channels. If you had some UF, UFH channels, you know, now we go. Yeah. They're gonna be watching them on the computer, on their watches, I know, on yeah. their on their telephones. They're gonna have a phone with. They're gonna have a TV station totally devoted to the, you know, the the witness twenty four seven. Watch these dead witnesses. Yeah, uh, you know. And today we look at that verse and say, wow, it's it's not symbolic. And for years it was taught this is symbolic. It's just uh, hyperbole. You know, the whole world can't be watching them, but people are gonna be interested. Yeah in the newspaper reports and, and stuff. And now we're to a point where we actually could picture a, a, a cable television channel, <laughs> the, the, the two witnesses all the time, you know, <laughs> you know, watch that channel. And we know that, you know, you know but, we, but we, you understand what I'm saying? We're yeah. seeing things yeah. in the, 
We're seeing things that were for years saying, oh, there's no way that that's anything but, but figurative. The idea of one world currency that you couldn't buy or sell without the mark of the beast on your hand. And now we know that all they, they want to put computer chips in people. Okay? And they're selling it as a great idea. Never have your kid lost. Now, they're very careful not to put it in the, fore, the, the forehead or the hand because they know that Christians would be screaming, Mark of the Beast. You know, they put it up in the shoulder and, and it's a way to track them. Matter of fact, they have GPS in them. So if your kid gets lost, you activate the GPS and find your kid. Well, they have it in the animals, too. And they have them in the animals. and Soldiers. I've been told soldiers have them, too. It makes yeah. a dumb thing to me to have a soldier with a GPS unit in it. But, you know, but <laughs> and her, you know, have enemy, enemy hacks into your system. We know where all your soldiers are. Bang, 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 you're dead. Uh, but... You know, we want to be careful on all of this because there's so much going on that God has. He wants to be lifted up. And when the last person that God knows that, that he wants in the kingdom is saved, we're going to see him come back. Who that last person is, I don't know. So we all get out and get everybody saved, you know, and then maybe you'll get the last person saved and we'll all go to heaven. <laughs> uh, um, but God knows who that person is. And he says, okay, it's done. It's over. Can it be a long time? It might be. I don't believe that it is. It would be scary to me to see how much worse the world is going to get if it's 500 years. Uh, even if it's a couple of decades, how bad the world's going to get because of how dark things are now. And you know, we're fortunate. Even, yeah, look at that when David went back then now. So I mean, his night and day. Well, everything is still going on, but it is going on so but, rapid, so dark. We're not that much different than Rome and, and Greece was, and but we're close to what they were at. Who knows how bad the days of Noah was? I mean, it said that every imagination of man was evil. We're not far from that kind of mentality right now. We're, we're spoiled here in chloride. You know, it's, you know, as bad as chloride is on many things, it's still not quite as bad as a lot of cities are. But you go to cities and there's places in cities where you do not go. It doesn't matter. It's, it's not your, not necessarily even skin color. It's just there are places that you do not go. When I delivered pizzas in Sacramento, there was there was three or four blocks that said we do not deliver to these to, the, to these blocks in the city because they considered it so dangerous that they would not deliver down there. The police barely went. You know, almost had to be forced to go into those three blocks, uh, and so. We're getting back. And the sad thing is, those type of three block areas are starting to get bigger and more, more out there. And people are doing what pleases them. And our schools are teaching, are teaching people, do what makes you feel good. Don't care what anybody else is. You know, do what makes you feel good. And that's, that's your ultimate goal. So it's very scary. All right, verse 5. That your that your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand and hear me. And in this case, he's referring to Israel, God's beloved. And it says, that your beloved may be saved, save with your right hand and hear me. And we've talked about right hand. Right hand is your sight of approval. And David's saying, bring them back to approval. And don't cast us away, bring us back. And it's great to have a leader that wants to call their country to repentance. We've had a few in our in our history. 
California. Most, most students don't realize all the prayers of, of George Washington for this country and how much he honored God. Even Abraham Lincoln was very strong with his prayers for this country. In recent years, we haven't had anybody that's really strong on, on praying for this country. And that's sad. Our, our leaders do not put their whole trust in God and bring him out. It's been a long time. been a very long time yeah. since we've had a real, we've had some godly men in the office, but it has been a long time since we've had a man who would bring God into just about everything that goes on in, the, in, this, in his rule and call the people to true prayer. Yeah. Thanksgiving was brought about for that very reason, to call the nation into giving God thanks. It wasn't supposed to be this whole idea of make your turkeys get stuffed and watch football you know, and give thanks for a few good things that happened to you. It was to go to God and present the thanks that, he that we had a nation that was under God, that followed God. And this is the sad thing about our country. When we really think about how far this country has fallen from in its worship of God, it is a very sad thing when I, when I look around and I see the distance this country has come down. The lack of morality, the lack of truth, the lack of, of honor. A constitution that's been totally shredded that doesn't mean anything anymore. That's a scary thing to me when there's no, no constitution to speak of. Yeah, when we, we talk about our rights as individuals and they want to tell you, well, you have the right to your beliefs, just don't tell anybody about them. Yeah. And that's pretty much what we're being told. You can believe whatever you want, that's fine, but you cannot take it out of your personal life and in, impose it on anybody. They impose things on us. But impose as many sins as you want on everybody. But see, in their mindset, in the way they're taught in school, that's not a sin, it's just doing what makes them feel good. And if I can do what makes me feel good, that's good. It doesn't matter that we consider it a sin in their mind. Our hope is not in politics. Our hope is not in, in them. Our hope is in God. Our hope is in a revival coming across this country and bringing all groups, no matter what party and who they are, in line with the Bible. Because until and if that happens, we have no hope. The, the government is not our answer. The government getting into it. It's very important for us to keep in mind when we vote, I, I really don't vote either Republican or Democrat. I look at the individual and what they believe and say, Does, do they believe what the scripture says? But our hope is not in politics. Our hope is not in politicians. Our hope is in God. And very critical that we keep that in mind because the only answer is, are they going to follow the word of God? And that is very discouraging, very depressing when you vote for somebody and you think you knew what they stood for and then you watch them have zero backbone and not stand up. So our only hope is in God. Our only hope is in a massive revival sweeping the country and actually the world. Uh, and if that happens, then God, if, if we had a revival, then, then we've got another 50, you know, 20 to 20, 50 years because the revival will turn things around, turn God's wrath around and, and until it dissipates. And it does. 
But the first great awake, the great, the great awakening, the second great awakening in America, it held back God's, God's wrath in this country for 50 to 100 years, depending on which one you're talking about. But if we had a great awakening, we have longer. I just don't see it happening. You know, would I love for it to happen? Absolutely. I'd love to see if there's any grand, if any of my kids ever have grandkids for me, I'd love to see those children have a chance to grow up in a world that is righteous. The scariest thing to me is any child born right now doesn't look like they're going to have any chance of living in a righteous environment, which means their parents have to really teach them and keep them in a good Bible-believing church and teach them to follow God, which would put them at odds with the world, which each one of us are at odds with the world. If we're going to hold a biblical standard, we're at odds with the world right now. And the world is not going to put up with us. Political, uh, political correctness is running rampant. And we see it even in our elections today. Uh, but again, we want to be careful because the government is never going to be our answer. And we as Christians need to be careful that we don't fall into that. We don't, but we do want to go out in our country and vote. Because that is our opportunity to try to find. But we want to vote with our Bibles open and say, this is what I believe. Does it seem like they believe this? And I and I use that. There's all kinds of different places where you can answer questions to what you believe, and it'll recommend who to who clo most closely matches you. But we go out and vote as, as Americans, but we're not putting our hope in that ballot box. And if you've lived long enough, you're gonna you'll know darn well that you vote for somebody, and even if they get elected, you watch them not do what you thought they were going to do. And you go, wow, why did, I, why did I bother? So our goal in life needs to be revival. Get people saved. Get enough people saved that our politicians become people who are saved. In the early part of our country, if you weren't even a Christian, you weren't even allowed to take office. You weren't even allowed to take office in, in all 13 colonies had a statement. I, so-and-so, affirm, affirm that the Bible and the laws of God are correct or some nature of that format was in their constitutions. That they could not even take office without being a person who was willing to take an oath that they were a Christian. Now, this, and our country has gone so far, uh, so fast downhill, that we're not the Christian country we used to be. And anybody denying that we were a Christian country is not, does not understand history and they're reading all the, the revised history that's out there because that's really what they're trying to do is take Christianity out of the, our history. They tell you that the pilgrims came here to rape and pillage the land and they came here to establish freedom of religion and evangelize the Indians. But you watch, you watch Disney's version of Pocahontas, you'd never know that that was the purpose of coming to this country. You watch most Pilgrim's stories, you'd never know that that was the, the, story, the, the purpose of coming to this country. Now, most people don't know that Pocahontas went to England, became a Christian, got baptized, and then came back later on to die. You know, she became a Christian. Now, that is not something that's in most people's history books anymore. The whole purpose of the coming to America was to evangelize, to raise a church. 
and to be free to worship God yeah. and yeah, to create missionaries to go out. And this history has been lost and our country has gone down to the place where nobody even knows our history, nobody knows our founding roots, nobody knows that the First Continental Congress actually printed Bibles because they thought it was so important that they gave Bibles to all the citizens of America and the government paid for this and the debates that they went on when they were trying to save freedom of religion. To, the, to our founding fathers, religion meant only one thing. That was Christianity. It wasn't Muslims, it wasn't Buddhist, it wasn't Hindus, it wasn't Dru Druidism. That was all infidels and false religions. They, they debated on whether to write Christianity in there, but they decided everybody knows what religion is, so we're not going to put Christianity in there. And from our day and our point, we look back and say, boy, wouldn't it have been nice if they put Christianity in there? The, the key to this is our country had its foundations. It was built correctly. We used to be the country that, that put out more missionaries than any other country. Now we're a country receiving more missionaries than any other country. It's sad. It's sad that America is receiving missionaries from Asia, from Africa, from South America. We're receiving missionaries from the places we used to send missionaries to. How we have fallen. It's going to get worse. I would love to see a great revival strike this country, but I'd love to be wrong. That is one place I would love to be wrong on. I'd love to see a great revival sweep this country. All right, let's look at this here. Back to verse uh, 6. God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and meet out the valley of Succoth. And this is David speaking. And he, because David is there, he's, 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 uh, he's I'm going to divide Shechem. And if you look on your map, Shechem is actually right almost dead center above the word Israel. And... He says that I will meet out the valley of Succoth and meet his measure out. Measure. We talked about that a couple days ago in one of the classes. And he says, I'm going to measure out Succoth. And we've got that big question mark. We don't know exactly where that is, but we know it's somewhere in Shechem because if you remember the story in, in uh, Genesis where uh, Levi and uh, his brother killed all the men of Shechem. <laughs> Uh, and it talked about that being in the Succoth Valley. So it's somewhere in that area, even though there's a question mark there. Um, then it says, Gilead is mine. Now, Gilead, if you look on your map, it is, it is uh, to the side of Jordan. On one, uh, The western border is Jordan River. The northern border is the mountains of, of Gilead, which is a mountain range up there around Amram and Syria. And it goes down to where you see Ammon. And it goes out mostly across that whole part of our map. It's a huge area. And that's the land of Gilead. And there's a number of cities that have Gilead in their name in that, in that region. So David's starting up there and says, Gilead is God's. And Manasseh is God. And Manasseh, remember, Manasseh is what tribe that was split between the east and the west side of the Jordan. On the east side, Manasseh basically took up the area of Gilead. On the 
north side, uh, the, the west side, excuse me, basically Manasseh was right there where Samaria is. That whole area was Manasseh in the early, early parts of the country. So he's starting up north and he's saying, these places up north are gods. He says, Ephraim also is the strength of mine. Ephraim is right under Manasseh, under Samaria. It, it calls all that area of Shiloh, Shechem, and pretty much where the word Israel is on the map. And west is, was Ephraim, the whole tribe. Then he goes, No, east and uh, north and south. They split north and south. And it was really just above Jerusalem that they split. And, and uh, Samaria was the capital of Israel. Made a nice, it would have made a nice dividing line, wouldn't it? But there's actually a mountain range that runs through there that kind of separates the two. Uh, so that they were somewhat separated by mountain, not, not what we would call mountains, but a range of hills that kind of gave them a place where you had to go through passes to get there real easy. Not that they weren't totally able to be blocked off. Uh, then he goes, Judah is my lawgiver. Judah, if you look down, uh, straight down from uh, there, you'll see the word Judah. This is where the the southern kingdom was located and where the tribe of Judah was established. And it said Judah is the lawgiver. Jesus is of the tribe of Judah because he couldn't be the king of Israel without being from the line of Judah. And so Judah, and it started all the way back that that Isaac, when he blessed the boys, said, or, uh, Israel, when he blessed the boy, said, Judah will always have the lawgiver. They will have the king. And this is long before they even were going to think about having a king. Now, there were only 12 brothers, you know, 12 brothers at this time. He says, Judah, you're going to, the king's going to come from you. I think years before they're going to get to a king. Two or three hundred years of, of judges ruling them before they get to a king. And Judah would be where the king came from. And yet the first king God chose... For the people came from which tribe? Benjamin. Benjamin. And not the right tribe to be the lawgiver. So. Yeah, but he was with Judah, wasn't he? It wasn't Benjamin and uh, Reuben both with? Well, Benjamin and Judah will join together via the southern kingdom. Yeah. So they will stay together. But when the first king of Israel came, it was the wrong tribe. It wasn't the prophesied tribe. So Saul's dynasty was, was destined to fail from the beginning, doomed. or doomed. It was doomed from the very beginning to have a dynasty. Now, you know, if he had been behaving and done what he was supposed to, Jonathan might have taken over. But at some point, it had to switch over to Judah because that was the prophecies. So we've got Judah, and Judah's going to be the lawgiver. And then he says... Moab is my washpot. Over Edom will I cast out my shoes. Moab and Edom are off to the right side of your map. Do you remember whose children Moab and, and Edom are? Moab and Esau. No. 
Esau is Edom. Moab comes from? Oh, the nephew, Lot. Lot. Okay. And then Ammon, which I think is already gone by this point in time, was one of Lot's, uh, the other Lot, uh, child of Lot. And so he doesn't have much good to say about them, does he? You know, one's going to be a wash pot. <laughs> you know, we're going to wash all our dirty dishes and clothes in this wash pot. Uh, how would you like to be the nation considered the wash pot of God? You know, anything dirty, we're going to throw your way. <laughs> Almost as bad as a sewer, huh? <laughs> yeah, you're going to be our sewer. Uh, no, not a melting pot. <laughs> and then, probably even worse, you know, he says to Edom, uh, I'm going to cast my slippers at you, my shoes at you. Now, when I'm done with my shoes, I'm going to throw my shoes over your direction. You know, and even sandals get stinky. <laughs> yes, they do. Uh, and I'm, this is where I'm going to store them. I'm going to store my, my dirty clothes over there in, in Moab and my stinky shoes over there in Edom. Not a very, not a very flattering view for these, but they're also not Jewish territory. He's he's talking about the beginning. He says, "Gilead's mine, Manasseh's mine, Ephraim, you're the strength of my head, Judah, you're going to have a lawgiver. Oh well, we'll include you other guys. You're, you know, your lots, your lot and Esau's children. So you're still there. You're there, but you're don't have much good to say for you. Yeah, that is a kind of a harsh place." And these places have re were always in battle with them. They were always struggling with them. And they're part of the, and again, one thing you always want to remember, everything going on in the Middle East is a big family war. Yes. All right? It is a family war over there. Lots of children, are, you know, they shouldn't have been ever born because of the way they were born, have always been a, a thorn in this flesh for them. The, and the biggest thing is, Abram was told to leave your family behind, and he took Lot with him, being in disobedience with God. Lot took the wrong place, went up on the mountain's head, incest with his daughters, which was their idea, because they thought they weren't going to have any kids because he took them up on the mountains. And I don't think he planned to ever leave those mountains because he was so afraid. They ended up having these countries that were going to cause problems. Esau went and formed the Edomites, and and they've always been aside. Ishmael is going to form a lot of the different countries around them. And what happens in that is that the Muslims and the Arabs trace their roots through Ishmael. Ishmael was the oldest born, and by, by laws and traditions should have been given the promises of Abraham. But God had other plans. Again, Abraham's disobedience brought in a huge number of enemies for Israel. Ishmael had 12 sons that became what they called dukes, masters of these different Arab world. And they've been in trouble ever since. Did Esau have 12 sons too? I believe Esau did. I don't remember, but I do know that Ishmael did. So, but you're sitting here in the Middle East all because Abraham was disobedient to God, you have a ton of problems in Israel, his in the Middle East. Yeah, and that's Ishmael. Ishmael came because he and Sarah kind of got 
impatient waiting for God and got discouraged and and he had this son who's caused all kinds of problems for his descendants ever since. And because he brought Lot out of the Ur of Chaldees, he ended up with other troublemakers. Now Esau and Moab, uh, Edom, are probably the only one that is actually a valid enemy of Israel because you had Isaac and Esau being born. Okay, And they were the descendants of Abraham, literal correct descendants. So Edom is only one out there that should be there if Abraham had not been disobedient. So all the trouble in Israel is direct response to Abraham not obeying God. Kind of a sad thing. Back to obedience. Back to obedience and the consequences of disobedience. Disobedience has long-term consequences. And we may not even think about the, the long-term consequences that are going to be out there, but they are, Middle East is a great example of generations of disobedience consequence. Five to six thousand years. Close to four to five thousand years worth of disobedience that's there. That's a long time. And the suffering that goes on in that area is because of the disobedience. Now, they've all had their own choices, obviously. I mean, it's not just Abraham, but that he, if he had not been disobedient, would never have brought Lot, which means that Moab and Ammon would never have existed and he would have never given birth to Ishmael. Would there still be problems out there? They're God's people. Yes, there would be all kinds of problems out there. But it wouldn't be a family issue. And you know, family issues are the hardest ones to solve. They really are. Now, you can solve disobedience between, with yeah, dis disagreements with strangers or friends, but you start dealing with family, and especially at this particular type, where is where the where the, the you know the Muslims have a legal valid ground saying it belongs to us. We're we we're from the oldest child. It should have gone to us. And God said, uh, -uh I'm doing it differently. You know, this child was not supposed to be born. I'm giving it to. They had a lot of kids back then too. Some of them, yeah. So. No, because Sarah only had one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sarah only had one. Jacob. Well, Isaac, of course. How old was Sarah when she had him? 90, 99. 99. And you're 88. 11 years more, you've got to live before you're going to have Sarah. <laughs> the second child. Second child. No, first. Well, because Sarah never had a child. Oh, okay. And, and that, that, well, that was what we were talking about, how old oh, Sarah okay. was. But she also lived. She also lived a little bit longer yeah. after that too. So, it's, so we look at this and we see that you know there's nothing good said about Edom and 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 uh, and Moab, and it says Philistia, which is on the on the way down on the left side, triumph thou because of me. And, and Philist Philistia is where the Philistines live, and they were always going to war with Israel and oftentimes winning. And they had giants. There were lots of giants in, in Philistia. They were big, yeah. And you know, you got Goliath in there, and Goliath had five brothers, and, and those brothers had, had children before they died. And you know, there were giants in the Philistines, you know, that the Philistines produced. And it says Why did they die out? <laughs> If you look 
through history, the wealthier a country is or, or, or territory is and the more prosperous they are, the larger the people tend to be. And we see that in America. We're getting, you know, there was a period of time where we were, you know, used to be, if you were five foot tall, you were really tall in America. Now if you're six foot tall, you're still pretty short nowadays. You know, we've been yeah. people seven, seven and a half feet tall. You're seeing in Japan where people used to be four and five feet, you know, they're starting to produce six, seven foot people. If you look at history, the better off we are food-wise, uh, health-wise, tends to draw larger people. When things are depressed with the economics and depressed with the sure? food, it, it, well, it starts stunting it because they become the ones that can live. They don't need as much food, and they and they live longer, and their their genes are passed on. I think that that's what you saw in that area. The Philistines were right by an ocean, plenty of food, lots of lots of lots of uh, rain to keep their fields fertile, so they would grow. You know, so it's not an uncommon thing. If you look through history, you see this this cycle of things going on, and you see the places being crushed. You know, with the famines and, and everything and you watch the the height of people go down it's amazing now back east you go to some of these uh, places like Washington's home and and Jefferson's home and these beds are like how they sleep in those things you know it's yeah and they were long enough for them uh, and I think that's what it is a big part of it uh, I think it's historical we just don't usually think of the size of people at that at that particular time well, yes, there were people that were tall. He had a disease. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but when you think of Abraham Lincoln and you think of Jefferson and you think of George Washington and some of uh, Daniel Boone, Dave Crockett, you think of huge men because their lives were so brilliantly big. But that don't mean they were. I don't know about Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett, but both both uh, Washington and Lincoln were. But you look at also at their lifetimes; they grew up on farms and successful farms. They, you know, it is possible that they had the feeding and everything. And and they, they George Washington, however big the other people were, he was head and shoulders above them, and he stood out in the army. He was a very big man. Lincoln stood out in the crowds because you know he. He'd kind of stand out, you know, not as much today, but you know, he was a tall man, and for some reason, it we tended to pick those kind of people to be leaders, and I don't they know why. They see everybody. I don't. Yeah. yeah. Who knows? Who knows exactly why? There's some probably some psychological reason that Saul. a big, tall person is is well, he better not off. A sharp person because nobody would listen to him. Well, Saul and his boys all stood head and shoulders taller, and David's brothers were. Samuel was wow with each one of them. This has got to be him. I mean, look at him. They were just bigger, yeah. bigger guys. David was. So, but we don't we don't know all of, all of what that and you know and David was the youngest, so it was he was nothing impressive when he first got picked. So, right. obviously though, he got to be a pretty good sized man because you don't go to battle, you know, as the smallest guy in the army and get get your reputation like that usually, especially not in those days. Right, let's try to finish up these three verses. Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? 
Will you, O Lord, which have cast us off, and you, O God, that did not go out with our armies? So he's saying, Who, who's going to be my deliverer? Who's going to who's going to help me take these cities? God, you you have abandoned us. Is it going to be you? Is it going to be you? How often do we think that we're alone? And God somehow has abandoned us in the middle of our trials. Sometimes maybe he maybe he almost is a little silent from us. But it's never God who's moved. I love the statement, you know, if you think God's moved, look around because it's you who've moved. And the, the guy told the story, and I've seen this happen more than once. He, he said, I love going to the ocean. And he goes, when I was 10 years old, my friend and I got to go in, in by ourselves. And we were playing around for about an hour, and all of a sudden we looked up, and mom and dad were about a half mile, had moved a half mile up the beach. <laughs> he goes, and then I noticed that the hotel had moved a half mile up the beach. And he goes, I was a pretty dumb kid, but I, I, I kind of was smart enough to figure out that hotels don't move. But the point is, and I don't know if you've ever been to an ocean, but it is easy to end up yes, half yeah. mile, a mile down the, the beach, yeah. you know, because of the currents. Thinking you're in the same spot. And not realizing that you're, you're the one moving. If you go out to a river and you're on a, on a floaty, you know, or inner tube or a float, if you're not careful, you can end up in Havasu. You start out in, start out in Boyd and be in Havasu if you weren't paying attention uh, and never know it. It, it's important. We drift from God so often, and we look around and say, God, where, where'd you go? And it's us who've drifted from him. It's us that have gotten out of his word. It's us that have quit praying and spending time with him. And I'm sure that this is where David's at right now. He's been the one drifting, not God. And he's looking for God, saying, you know, you didn't even go with us, God. You know, I didn't, I didn't seem to feel you, and are you going to be the one that delivers? And then verse 11, give us help for our trouble, from our trouble, for vain is the help of man. Vain is the help of man, worthless. Worthless is the help of man. And he says, God, you give us the help from our trouble. And then he says, through God, we shall do valiantly, for he is able to tread down our enemies. He is our defense. He is our shelter. He is our protector. If we will just rest in him, he will take out the enemies. If we want to do, and as I said this morning, if we want to do it ourselves, God is more than willing to say, okay, you want to do it? Be my guest. Have fun. I'll sit here and laugh for a while. And if you've ever had your kids you know, saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And you sit back and you get to have a fun time just watching your kids and laughing at your kids as they fall flat on their face because they don't want to do, have any help to do anything. Sometimes, though, it's not funny. Sometimes when they're doing that, it's not funny, especially when they get older and say, I'm going to do this. I don't need any advice. I don't need any help from God. And you watch them make some serious mistakes in their lives. You know, and this is where David's at. God, the help of man is worthless. Come and help us. Give us victory. And God, you do it. And it's so important for us just to let God be the one that does it for us and watch him work. Otherwise, he'll just sit back and watch us. He'll laugh. He'll say, look at that crazy kid down there trying to do that themselves. You know, All I got to do is go around that rock and they could walk up the stairs and they're trying to climb up the rock. My dad moved to Tennessee. He was 67 or 8 years old. 
just let him do it he'll protect us he'll keep us from the pitfalls I remember the first time I went swimming out of waterfalls and my friends were calling me through the waterfalls and and like a dummy I didn't even think about the fact that water pounding on the on the ground at the bottom of it had to create a big hole I tried to walk through a waterfall never try to walk through a waterfall and I got pushed down to the bottom of that hole which is about 20 feet deep and it was very scary it was very scary. I, good thing I love deep water because I was able to keep my head. But I was thinking, how am I going to get myself up against this flow, this waterfall? And then I was able to kind of step out when I hit the bottom. I was able to kind of step out from under and be able to push up against. It was fun once I knew it was there, and you know, it was never scary after that. But I would never do it on an unknown waterfall because I don't. You never know how deep that waterfall might be. But you know. God would be the type to say, no, no, don't go through that. Come on around, you know, go around the waterfall. Don't try to go through it. Now you watch these movies where people walk through a waterfall. You never try that. It doesn't work. Uh, but God will protect us. He will guide us around the pitfalls. He will help us get to where it is that we're needing to go to because he is our protector if we'll listen to him. And... If you've ever been through a maze, try to go through a maze without knowing the maze. But if you've had somebody above the maze looking up and saying, take a left, take a right, you know, you'd be able to get through the maze real quick and easy. And if you're trying to go through without any kind of help, you get twisted around real easy. And God is up there saying, hey, I know, I know this maze. I, I can get you through it. Just listen. And we have all kinds of problems with our life that God wants to help us from. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for all that you've done and given us. We ask that you go with us as we do our week this week. Guide, lead us, help us with all that we're doing. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.